Welcome to this episode of Shoulder to Shoulder, where we strive to grow in love of the Lord and each other. I'm Pam Marvin. And I'm Megan Silas. And we welcome you back for this episode of Shoulder to Shoulder. We are going to be discussing a topic today, which is near and dear to us as converts. Pam and I, as most of you who are listeners know, are both converts to the Catholic faith. And every now and then we kind of revisit that reality and and how that sort of colors things differently for us. Um, I think maybe for me a little more than for you, Pam, simply because I was raised very much Protestant, Yes. whereas uh you were kind of raised a little less in faith. Uh, yeah, yeah, you could say that. My yeah. mom was an atheist. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that's definitely yeah, less in faith. Less faith. Yeah. For <laughs> so sure. you know, I grew up with a very, very Protestant understanding of Christianity, and the interesting thing about it is, is that while it was thoroughly Protestant in its understanding, it didn't. I didn't know where that all came from. Right. And that's that's what inspired me to talk a little more about, about things that were surprising to me to find out about um, Protestant, Protestantism in general that were a little bit surprising. And to, we're not going to take a real deep dive into this today, mm-hmm. but I think some of these facts are just fascinating. To start off, Knowing that it happened only about 1,500 years ago, is that right? Like, what was the year? No, 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 sorry, about 500 years ago. 500? Yeah, 500. Where am I getting 1,500? So usually, Maybe it was the year 1,500? The year 1,500, They celebrated the anniversary, the 500th anniversary in 1517. That's when uh, Luther—okay, there is debate as to whether or not Luther actually nailed his 95 theses on the, you know, door of the church in Wittenberg, but— the reality is, is that that is considered sort of the opening bell of what is considered to be the Protestant Reformation is when Luther, in a public way, whether it was doing it this way on the door of the church or however he he did it, he definitely published a, you know, a treatise, we'll call it, on his issues with the Catholic Church as it existed at that time in 1517. But one of the things I think is really important before we really talk about what happened from then on is to really take a look at what was going on in the church prior to that. Because the reality is, is that it was widely recognized that all was not well in the house of God prior to that point. Right. There was a lot of stuff going on. So when I went back to kind of refresh my memory on it, because I will say that the first time in my whole life that I ever looked at what brought about the Reformation was literally a few months before my conversion to the Catholic faith, because I had been away from faith to a large degree as an agnostic, and then through friendship was starting to kind of want to understand more fully like what was going on with the differences between the Catholic faith and the and the Protestant um, religion. Uh, but as I did that, I was coming from a perspective that I was just trying to understand what had happened, but I recognized at that point, and I was in my late thirties at that point, I had spent a good portion of my life as an evangelical, evangelical Christian, never actually looking at what had happened. Right. I had no idea of mm-hmm. the history of the reformation of how it all came about. N- no idea about the, 
early church and the history there with early church fathers and stuff, I was completely ignorant about it and had never occurred to me to even look into it. And I think the reality is, is that a lot of us as Christians, be us Catholic or Protestant, have lived out our Christian life really not even thinking about it. It's just, it just is. They're Catholics and they're Protestants. And that just is. The poor Orthodox, we hardly ever think about them, but they're there too, right? And But we don't question the why, the how, and what happened and how mm-hmm. that impacts things today, how we view each other. But what I wanted to say is as I... That I I kind of first looked at that back when I was you know in my late thirties, but now you know going on over a decade later, as I prepared for this show, I went back and looked at what the situation in the church was prior to the Reformation, and I'm reading it, and I have to tell you, Pam, I'm like, okay. This sounds a lot like the church today. Interesting. <laughs> and it was interesting because you know, some of the quotes I'll, I'll give you from, and this is from um, uh, an article that was on Catholic Answers, uh, which was basically an, a quote for a big passage from an encyclopedia, which interestingly enough, they did not actually reference specifically, but I think it's a Catholic encyclopedia. But it said that um, they're... The ecclesiastical organization of the church was governing things that were in almost every sphere of popular life, but worldliness had manifested itself in the highest levels of the clergy. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not reading directly, but so the abuses in the lives of the clergy were rampant. The papal curia was involved in a whole lot of political stuff with governments and things like that. Sounds familiar. There was a lot of getting, you know, cozying up to secular rulers and trying to accomplish things through temporal powers. There was ignorance, superstition, and religious indifference and immorality among the everyday Catholic people. And and this was from the time that the of the 14th century, they had already had this demand come out for reform of head and members. Uh, there was this sort of official kind of claim that in in the early 1400s we we need end of the, thir- the late 1300s early 1400s okay there's some problems here and we need to do something about it so it wasn't like it was completely unknown to the church that there were issues and then so there's this thing called the western schism where um it was again late 1300s, early 1400s, where there was a lot of, I'm not going to get into the major details of it, but there was a lot of disagreement about who was the validly elected Pope. At some point, there's like three Popes. Then, and there's, you know, at this point, the Pope wasn't even Rome for a while. He's in Avignon and all this stuff. And so the reason I think it's important to recognize all that is it's easy for us to say as Catholics, oh, the reformers were just wanted their own religion. They wanted to do their own thing and they just totally had no um, justification for what they were up to. But the reality is, is that there was a lot of really unfortunate things happening in the church. And reform was needed. Reform was needed. Um, the difference here I've heard articulated like this is that he took it into his own hands and upon himself 
um, and started to work outside the system. This is Martin Luther we're speaking of, instead of trying to reform from within. Right. And it's important to remember that Martin Luther was a priest. And so as a priest, he had, you know, made vows of obedience and things. So he, his disillusionment did start out, I think, with, you know, a true recognition, recognition of some things that were really wrong. Like a lot of people talk about the indulgence issue and what was happening is that they were trying to raise money for the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica. And so what they did was considering that giving alms is an, you know, a corporal act of mercy and that these sort of things you can grant indulgences that's within the the purview of the church to to grant indulgences but what was happening is it was getting so tit for tat that it was like okay you pay this much and you know you get this many years off and it was so transactional um that it was clearly even though maybe it was licit. This heart of it was not right, you know, right. kind of like in the way that, you know, the Lord was like a Pharisees, you know, you follow the letter of the law, but the heart is not in it. Like it was very much a, a money raising thing. And so this idea of your need for the church for your salvation, I think the indulgence really got on that point. It's like, do we really need these guys who are just looks like they're trying to pilfer money out of us to be saved, to have a chance for ourselves or our loved ones to get to heaven? Is that really necessary? So that idea creeping into the heart and mind of man, do we really need the church? I think is really where it all sort of Mm. snowballed from. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, kind of the indulgence thing was that thing that pushed the snowball over the edge of the mountain that then it really started to gain speed. Right. And, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Megan, but I watched a movie a while back on Martin Luther and, and one of the, the heart of what he was going through and experiencing was um, he was very scooped scrupulosity experienced scrupulosity and he couldn't seem to get past it and he was really looking for a way for him to to feel better and to be okay um Mm -hmm. but within like confession and and his scrupulosity was just tearing him apart and so he figured a way out of that is this ringing a bell with you oh yeah absolutely and you can get into a lot of theological discussion about whether it's imputed or <laughs> like there, it, I don't want to get into it actually because it gets too complicated. But I think what you're tr- getting at is that Luther struggled to receive the truth of God's complete forgiveness and mercy that was transformative. He held on so much to this idea of his innate badness that he couldn't except that the blood of Christ didn't just cover him, it cleansed him completely to the core of who he was, that he's the transformational power of the mercy and love of God and the 
the passion of Christ truly wiping out sin, not just covering it over. And that's, and that's really where he was at. He struggled with that. And so in order to deal with that reality, he felt like he needed to put forward this idea that it's, it's just the believing the justification is by faith alone. So if I just believe it, then that's what matters. It doesn't have, to, I don't have to get caught up in this idea of, am I really pure, pure or not? It's, it's, it's my believing that does it. The once saved, always saved is the same thing, right? No, that's not necessarily the uh, same okay. thing. It, and really the once saved, always saved thing comes more from a Calvinistic idea uh, okay. of predestination. So the idea of Luther would agree that you, that everyone would have a shot if they believe. So faith by justification by faith. So if you truly believe in Christ as your savior, then you can be saved. Calvin had an interesting idea that there's actually not everyone is saved from the very beginning, from their creation. Some are predestined for for being saved and some are not. And so his idea was that if you were predestined for salvation, you're saved, period. End of story. It doesn't matter what you do. It was God's decision, not your decision. Gotcha. Right? And so nothing you can do can lose it. And so that's where that once saved, always saved concept comes in. That it's God's decision who's saved and man has nothing to do with it. Mm. And so that completely eradicates the concept of free will working within salvation. And again, but think about it again, as I, as I framed it, this idea, do we really need the church? If everything's just decided by God from the get go, who needs a church? It's all decided by God. Right. Right. And so that idea the, the church as a necessary for salvation, is it necessary? And if so, why? That's where the, the issue comes up. Because as soon as you say, no, the church isn't necessary, well, then you can go all these different places and decide what you think is or isn't necessary. But as long as you don't have a visible authoritative structure that's necessary for salvation, you're free to roam. Right. And that's what happened. Like the Reformation is not one set of ideas that was contrary to the Catholic faith. And then they move forward together. It was numerous people with different sets of ideas that they were putting forward. But reality is the main idea is we don't need a church to figure it out. We can figure it out on our own, through scripture, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all these sort of things. Right. Which leads me to my kind of my other question um, about the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church that I completely fell in love with and to this day just nourishes me are the sacraments. So there's seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. but then yet in the Reformation, they just kind of all threw up were thrown up in the air and maybe one or two landed like marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, 
baptism maybe too? Well, the reality is, is the whole concept of what is a sacrament is not universally held among Protestants anyway. I mean, as a, as a Catholic, we understand a pro, the sacrament to be an actual visible sign of the invisible work of God, real true grace that's working through the actions of the church. Now, that idea, again, comes back to this sense that in order for there to be sacraments, as a Catholic understands it, there needs to be a church. A church. Right? That has authority to administer these sacraments. So what happens is, is that as it shakes down, um, it then doesn't become about what is a sacrament, but what is necessary for salvation. And these things can be interpreted differently based on the different theologies of the various reformers. So is baptism necessary for salvation? Yes. <laughs> According to you, <laughs> yes. For for a lot of the reformers, yes. They held on to the concept that baptism was necessary for salvation. But does baptism do anything other than be a symbol of your acceptance of Christ. Well, that differs among, you know, the different denominations. So say, for example, the the Anglicans, they didn't, they weren't so much involved with a lot at first, a lot of this ideas of Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, the more Germanic areas, they were kind of like, well, we, you know, Henry VIII just wanted to run their own church so he could do what he wanted. But they were really kind of holding on to this idea of a sacramental life for a while where, yeah, we still need sacraments and the church still needs to administer them. But the Church of England isn't unto itself. Well, the Protestant stuff that was going on in other parts of Europe did end up working itself into Anglicanism to a large degree. But it's just not hard and fast. You can't say you know, they believe this or they believe that or they believe that, and it's all together. The disunity of the reformers was literally from the get-go. There Mm. is no unity in Protestant theology about these details because there's no one to tell them they have to be unified in them, and and they don't even believe that um, there should be. There's this idea that you know, there's kind of an invisible church, which is those who are saved. And but what makes one saved, there's a lot of variety there. Um, Was there anything in particular um, on your journey that you were kind of surprised to find out about this um, separation, like that you didn't really know before that once you dove into it, you're like, wow, I didn't know that. Well, I think one of the things that was really shocking to me about it, it was in my mind, it was all like this pure spiritual seeking for truth and maybe coming up with different ideas. When I really read about it and just saw just how much political involvement was involved and how much it was taken up by rulers of countries to promote their own ends, like if you don't need a church, well, then I can kick the church out as a person that tells me, as, a, as an entity, excuse me, that tells me what to do or has any control over things in my jurisdiction. 
So in other words, getting rid of a moral authority. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You get rid of an authority structure that's outside of the state. And the funny thing about it is, while I didn't recognize that growing up, and I thought, you know, it was more a pure doctrine, like getting to the real truth and heart of Christianity. That was kind of the thought that I had grown up with, that it was really a a stripping off of human human additions and everything um, like that, but it was getting to the root of things, which I had no idea what the actual root of things were, uh, so I only was taking people's word for that. I, I was even more naive. I thought that Protestants were from the beginning of time, like the, the different churches sprung up all at the same time. I didn't oh, even, really? Oh, yeah. No, this is definitely in my, like, you uh, know, middle school. Right, okay. But okay, I thought sure. they existed it just always from the beginning of the church yeah. fathers, you know, sure. that— they existed and all grew up at the same time. And I was very shocked to learn again, like it was mm-hmm. only 500 years ago that this all happened. It all yeah. happened. But one of the things I will say is when I, at, at first I was shocked to understand how much it was a political movement as much as a spiritual movement, which I'm just finding this out today. Okay. Well, the political so side feel free it. to be shocked. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, after, Not shocked. <laughs> after I, after I pondered it more, you know, I recognize God doesn't allow anything to happen in this world Amen. that he doesn't want to bring good out of. And so when I pondered why he would allow this schism, this breakage, this divorce in his church, what good would he want to bring about? In as I looked back on it, I really feel like getting the church out of politics and temporal power structures and things like that was part of the good Mm. that he did bring out of it. Because the reality is, is that that's not the church's job. You know, Jesus says, render unto Caesars what's Caesars. You worry about what is of God. And it is very seldom that the aims of the political structures and those in power and prestige are the same aims as the heart of God for his people. And so this idea that the church at this point was so in bed with the political structures, and then this Protestant Reformation actually did cause a huge rupture of that, I think is one of the goods that the Lord has brought out of it. And when we see in this day and age, when the church is getting too cozy sometimes with political People who on one side maybe support some things that the church likes, but on the other side are totally opposed to what is good and true and moral. Like, no, you can't get in bed with with that kind of stuff because you think, oh, well, because they're in power, because they have political clout or, you know, it'll get me this over here that I'm going to compromise over here. So... I do think the Lord did allow it. The whole, all the reasons why he did allow it, I'm sure are not going to be clear until, you know, the last day when we get no, to see it all. But, but we are going to take a stab at it in the, the next episode. So y'all stay tuned and tune into that one, too, because we're going to talk more about um, what the Lord, the fruits that we've seen come from it. Yeah, definitely. We could do that. Um, but as far as where we are now with with it, with the understanding of what happened at the Reformation. I do 
want to get back to that point of why we have a visible church and why it's necessary as being the pivot point. Because as we move into the next episode of talking about why should we care? At this point, it's done, right? We're not fighting the Reformation anymore. There are, it's it's flown. There's all these different denominations and they continue to expand. There's tens of thousands of Protestant denominations that continue, that will continue to grow because that number, because the structure of what was set in place by the reformers of this idea that you don't need a visible church, you don't need a, an authority structure that satisfies the disputes, that you can interpret scripture by your own understanding, and that you don't need sacraments for salvation. That is going to continue to be the case that you'll just continue to have different people come up with different ideas and different things and they'll start new churches and churches will start disagreeing with each other and they'll break and they'll separate and, you know, and you see it now so clearly as there's been so much talk of the LGBTQI, whatever, you know, to the point where there's hundred letters, but you see the split among these traditional denominations, the old denominations of, you know, Lutheranism and, and Methodism and um, Presbyterians and all these, you know, different ones that were kind of like the core of the denominations from the past are splitting because they're not agreeing on these topics. And there's no one to say, no, this is what you need to believe as a Christian. There's no way to satisfy a dispute. And so when there's no final say, when there's no hierarchy that has the authority to say, you're just going to continue to have divisions. So that's not going to change. And in the end, as Catholics, what should we be desiring for our separated brethren? You know, because I think it's actually beautiful that as Catholics, we use that term our separated brothers and sisters in Christ. Because the reality is there's a, there's a number of Protestants who don't even see Catholics as fellow Christians. And there's good reasons for that. Because if they don't believe what we believe, say about the Eucharist, that it's truly Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity, and that it's worthy of worship, well, then we're bread worshipers. So if you're a bread worshiper... Or the misunderstanding that we worship saints, particularly Mary. If we're Mary worshipers, we think she's divine. Well, guess what? No, we're not proper Christians. And you should. we should be opposed if that's what we actually believed, that we worship saints, which we don't. Or if Christ really isn't present in the Eucharist, then we are worshiping a piece of bread. So in a way, their opposition of us in those places is charitable. Right? Right, right. But the thing is, is if we really believe what we believe is true, which is Christ is truly present in the Eucharist, and a church was established by Christ, and it is the surest means of salvation, it's uncharitable for us to not care. Right. 
So I think in the next episode, we want to talk about how can we care for each other? How can we talk to each other in a way that's going to be enriching and starts with a point of humility, but always infused with love and desire for unity? Amen. But before we end the show, are there any things that like about the Reformation that you really wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Well, just the most surprising ones, again, like I just, I've already mentioned 500 years ago. Um, I was real, I'm really sad that they lost the love of the, the Virgin Mary when Martin Luther never intended that. Little, little facts like that mm. I thought were interesting to me when, um, I've looked back now with the knowledge I have of the church that the lack of the sacraments is heartbreaking to me because uh, they fulfill me so much, you know, mm -hmm. the Eucharist confession, mass, daily mass. And, you know, this one, my daughter and I were talking about this, Megan, maybe you can shed some light on this. Why was there no, there's not a need to go to mass or to church every week. Like that's just not a thing. Like for us, that yeah. is a moral obligation because of the Ten Commandments that said, keep the Sabbath holy. Mm -hmm. Well, but to be Protestant advocate, <laughs> um, it doesn't say how you keep the Sabbath holy. Okay. So if your understanding of your faith is very much a personal thing, a, a thing between you and the Lord, not something that depends on a church, then why would you need to go to church? In order oh, to keep the Sabbath holy, okay. you can have prayer at home. You can, you know, do something. You could go do something that was, you know, in nature, or you could do something that was a service to other people, or whatever you felt called to as you discerned the Holy Spirit uh, was your service to the Lord um, on that day, would be your way of keeping the, mm -hmm. the, the Lord's day holy. So you see how this idea that we don't have a visible church that can tell us what that has to look like or what it should look like. And we get to interpret scripture in the manner that we choose based on how we're inspired. It leads to a lot of these differences and, and they're totally in a way it's completely logical. It's a logical outgrowth of that understanding right. of, of faith. And I know this as a person who lived in it for, you know, most of my young life. I didn't go to church for a long period of time and had no problem with that and didn't feel that that was in any way compromised the fact that I was a Christian. Like that was just not necessary for me to have a relationship with the Lord. Gotcha. It's all fascinating. I'm glad we got to talk about this today. Yeah, me too. And I'll look forward to the, the discussion on the next episode about really trying to talk with others about it and, and trying to cross this divide because, I, you know, more we than anything, it. as there's more and more um, animosity towards Christian beliefs, you know, we just had, for example, when this uh, episode is airing, you know, not less than a week ago, a person went and shot up uh, a Christian school. And there's definitely an understanding that there was an animosity towards the tenets of Christianity because this person was identifying as transgender and was very 
disturbed by the, you know, the teachings of Christianity as it relates to that. And so as we move forward, there are going to be a lot of things that unite us more than divide us in terms of how the broader secular culture is going to see us. And we're going to want to be able to support each other in the struggle to live the tenets of Christian faith that maybe are a little more universal than simply the uh, theological differences that we have on some more complicated points of salvation. So why don't we end on the note of unity? Okay. So we'll do that. Um, In John chapter 17, as uh, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer before he's arrested in the garden of Gethsemane, he prays this, having already prayed for his, uh, his apostles that were there, he prays, I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word so that they may all be one as you father are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Amen. Yeah. That we may all be one. That's the heart of our Lord. So I hope you'll join us next time as we talk about maybe some steps that we can take to try to foster unity among the body of believers. Mm. Well, thank you for joining us today. And until next time, I hope you will remain united with us in prayer. God bless. God bless.